0: If you have your Bibles, turn them to Matthew chapter 7. We're starting in verse 13. So here we are. We have made it to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We made it to the end of our first section on uh, of Matthew. And we're going to take a little bit of a break after this. And we're going to be studying the Old Testament and the overview and understanding God's epic story that he is telling through all of the scriptures. Um And so, as we've gotten to this point, we have taken the time to study Jesus' words, particularly over these past four or five weeks, talking about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first sermon that he gives in the Gospel of Matthew. And it is Jesus' opening teaching. He is setting the expectations for what we are to expect throughout the whole rest of the book. And so, he starts off by saying how to truly be part of the kingdom of heaven. You must not rely on yourself. And it is, this kingdom of heaven is actually kind of the upside down of everything that we have come to expect about what a great kingdom is supposed to be. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and not for their own gain. Blessed are uh, the peacemakers. Whereas in any other society, kingdom building takes backstabbing and it takes the... Uh, getting one over on your enemies. And so there is this upside down kingdom that Jesus is presenting to us. And he says, it's not in the great feats of human power. It's not in the great wisdom of philosophers and it's not in the great spirituality of religious leaders. The kingdom of heaven will only be entered by those who love the Lord and his law. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear that we, each one of us, have an ethical obligation to live with a superior righteousness if we wish to become citizens of heaven. You can't fool the Lord and gain entrance simply because of good deeds when your heart is ultimately in rebellion against him. Jesus makes this abundantly clear. He tells us that uh, while you may have heard it said, that you shouldn't murder someone, that you shouldn't commit adultery. Jesus takes it even further. He says, don't be angry with people. If you have been angry with someone, he says that even if you've called someone a fool, you deserve hell. He says that. And he says, even if you look at someone with lust for them, you have already committed adultery with them in your heart. Jesus takes it further from simply our actions and turns it to make us look at what the heart actually wants. So we may not be acting on these desires, and yet those desires are what condemn us. So Jesus continues and lays it out clearly that we must be perfect if we wish to enter the kingdom of heaven on our own works. He says we must be perfect because your father in heaven is perfect and nothing less than perfection is acceptable before him. And what we see even from the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus saying, I haven't come to eliminate the law. I've come to fulfill it. And we have this great hope for those of us who are Christians, for those who would believe that Christ is who he says he is. We do have a great hope because even though there's no way that we can be perfect, if you're honest with yourself, if you just look at your own life, you're not perfect. Just ask your siblings. Just ask your parents. Just ask your spouse to know whether you're perfect or not. And yet, that required perfection is of all of us. But you know what happens? Jesus himself came in the flesh to live that perfect life for us. And so through Christ, we can be represented. And we'll get more into that later. Now this morning, to close out this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that there is no neutrality when it regards to Jesus' teachings or who he claims to be. There's no such thing as a middle neutral road. There's no such thing as apathy once you have heard the teachings of Christ. You cannot say that you agree with his teachings though either and then carry on with no change in your life. Agreement with Jesus requires allegiance to Jesus and him alone. There's only the narrow path or the wide path. And the narrow path is a path of allegiance and submission. And the wide path is a path of antagonism and rebellion. There's no middle path. So now let's meditate on this truth together as we read Matthew chapter seven, starting in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by the fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray and let's dig into this together. Father, you are good. Father, your law is good. It is just and it is wise to show us how desperately we need righteousness that does not belong to us. Father, as Jesus preached this sermon to his hearers, Lord, and hearts were changed. People followed him. People turned away from him as well. Lord, we pray that hearts will be changed in hearing this sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is great in showing us who exactly we are and where we stand before the Father. It leaves us no boundaries to say I'm a good enough person. It does not allow us to live in the fantasy world of saying that I can possibly do this on my own oh, so Father, may we be turned to Christ to glorify him, to magnify his name because of this uh, teaching. May we change our lives based on the teachings of Jesus and not go away with this foolhardy notion that I can live for myself and still somehow be okay in the eyes of God. Lord, save us. Help us to see, open our eyes that we may see how foolish we are in our flesh that we may love and glorify you above all else. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus takes this idea of there are two paths that we can take. And he continues that idea now in this next section, in the section that we just read. And the two ways was a common Jewish metaphor. You see it throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament. You see it throughout other writings, Jewish writings from that kind of era, that there is this common way of saying there's the way of the wise and the ways of the fool. There are these two options that we have before us. And Jesus takes this and then accompanies this metaphor by showing three warning examples. And all three of them warn about the terrible danger of playing games with our eternal destiny. There's only one path to eternal salvation Salvation in all other attempts we will travel the broad road to ruin. So he starts by the, the narrow and the wide gate. There are two gates. There are two roads that Jesus uh, talks about. And those in Jesus' audience, when they're listening to him, when they're hearing him teach these things, and Jesus is talking to them, he is saying, if you agree with what I'm saying, yet do nothing about it, you're in great danger. You may say that this sounds good. You may say that you agree with it. But if you're ultimately going through the easy gate, the wide gate and the wide road that leads to destruction, you are in great danger because the Christian life was never meant to be easy. We must deny ourselves daily. Jesus tells us to take up our cross, which is an instrument of torture and follow him daily. Christian life is never meant to be what these preachers on TV will tell you. Oh, you're supposed to have a blessed and happy life. In one sense, we are, but it's only because of Jesus, not because of what he gives us, that we are blessed. Not because of our physical goods. The only gift that matters, the only gift that truly makes us blessed is salvation. And if we don't have that, we have nothing. We have an easy path that is leading us to destruction. True followers are expected to work hard at aligning their lives with the teachings of Jesus. Jesus says, the road is wide in the wide gate, but the road is narrow past the narrow gate. One of the implications of this is that, as in that time frame, if you're taking wagons, or in our time, if you're taking a car or a bus or a truck and you're trying to get all of this stuff to go with you, you need the wide road. As we moved up here with the big U-Haul, we needed wide roads. Those thin roads sometimes, the just two roads going each way and going 55 miles per hour. I'm like white knuckling it on that. But the idea here is that if we are to be followers of Jesus and we enter through the narrow gate, onto the narrow road, there's only so much that we can take with us. And it's going to be hard. We're most likely, in a sense, going to be on foot. We are going to be carrying what we have on our backs. It's not a comfortable life, but it is so good. So I, if you come this morning thinking that the Christian life is just supposed to make you uh, feel good about yourself, that it's just supposed to uh, make you wealthy or happy or healthy, Jesus says that's not true. And I'm just proclaiming what he's proclaiming this morning. And so as we look at this this morning, Jesus is saying that true faith will be seen in the works it produces. It is not that works saves us. Works is never the first thing. It is never my job to save myself. It is faith in Christ. That saves me. It is his grace to cover me with his blood that saves me. But if I actually have that faith in Christ, works will follow. If I look at a rickety old chair and I'm trying to put something up on the wall and someone's like, oh, yeah, just use that chair. I'm like, oh, no, it's fine. I'm not going to use it. Oh, it'll hold you. I believe you. I believe you, but I'm not going to stand on it do I actually believe that that chair will hold me if I will not put my actions where I'm saying I believe? I've used this before, and I'll probably use it again, but Jordan Peterson, the psychologist, the sociologist, uh, he was on a podcast, and he was talking with someone who's a Christian, and he said to him, I like the Christian story. I like all of these things, but I don't actually believe that Christians, people who claim to be Christians, actually believe it. Because if they actually did believe it, there's nothing in their lives that should, be, that should remain unchanged. And to be honest, when I look at Christians, they don't, they're not, those who claim to be Christians, they're not sufficient, sufficiently changed for me to actually believe them when they say that they believe this. Our actions must follow our faith. And if our actions are not following where we say our faith is, if we say we have faith in Christ and our actions are not following that, Jesus is making it abundantly clear. We don't have faith. No good works means there's never faith in the first place. The narrow gate doesn't necessarily mean that a small minority will go through this gate, but rather that it is the hard gate. It is not one that you can take all of these things with you. And the wide gate is the easy one. And so when we look at things in general in our lives, how often are we to choose the hard way when there's an easy way? Now, maybe that's more my generation. I know generations before me, and especially in this area, are good hard workers, and sometimes they'll say, yeah, let's just take the hard way. If it's the right way, do it the hard way. And uh, in my culture, uh, my youth, my uh, generation, where we have things so instantaneously, where we have things so easily and things can be made so cheaply and quickly. Sometimes it can feel like, let's just take the easy way. Let's just buy the cheap thing. Let's just uh, only put half of our effort into something. This broad road that Jesus is talking about is the way of the world. It is the way of the going along with the culture of believing what everyone tells us to believe. It is also the way of believing when those who claim to be Christians are spewing just they're only spewing hate. Or when they're spewing a gospel that is not the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. It's another gospel. And we'll get to who those people are here in a little bit. So many travel the road because you can carry whatever you want. Especially in our culture today, right? You can be whoever you want. You do you. Follow your own path. Follow your heart. Blaze your own trail. It's the easy and wide road because you can take whatever you want with it. But the final destination of this road is destruction. So then he continues on. And he gives us the two fruits. The good and bad fruits. And he starts it off by talking about false prophets. Those who will come in as wolves, wanting to destroy the flock of God. And he talks about their fruit. But it's not simply false prophets and teachers that we can know them by their fruit. It's ourselves. It's those who claim to be Christians. What is the fruit of their life? This is applicable to each of us. Jesus says, Thistles don't give figs. And fig trees don't give thistles. And so if we are to be a good tree, if we are to truly be who we say we are, rooted in the gospel, drinking up those wells, those streams of knowledge and goodness that God has to offer to us, the fruit of our lives will reflect that. But if the only fruit that is seen in our life is thistles, and thorn bushes. Jesus is saying, You don't have faith. So, these false prophets, they are the ones who try to lead those in God's flock astray. They lead them to other gospels, saying that it's not Christ alone that saves us, but rather it's Christ plus your works. As the Catholic Church would say, Your actions are the things that bring you grace going to confession, taking communion. These are literal acts of grace that take away your sins in the Catholic Church. That is what they argue. It's not Christ plus health and wealth and prosperity. It's not Christ plus miracles as some like Bethel Church in Reading are proclaiming. That's where Bethel music comes from, in case you didn't know, and in case you're keeping up with the music trend. They claim that the gospel without miracles is no gospel but the good news is about Jesus and him alone that can save us. It's not about that. We can have power to do miracles that we have all these supernatural abilities. Now, some of that might come with it that the Lord grants us supernatural knowledge that we didn't have. So these things to build up his church. We see that all throughout the new Testament, but that's not the point of the gospel. That is a gift from the Holy Spirit to build up the church of Christ. And so these false teachers will try to give you any gospel that helps move them forward, except the true gospel that Jesus is proclaiming. And these false teachers, they're like the hypocrites. And we'll start to uh, see a little bit more of that. But the hypocrites in chapter six, if you remember, the hypocrites, they make a big show. Of things, But in their hearts, they're not actually doing it. They will fast, but they'll put on sackcloth. So they'll rub ashes all over their face and be like, oh, I'm fasting. I'm so hungry. I'm so spiritual. And so people would notice them. Or the ones who pray out on the, on the side saying, God, I am a great prayer warrior. I stand on the street corner proclaiming the truth of God through prayer. Or those who give. Being like, hey, look at me. Look how much I'm giving. All of these are the examples given in chapter six that we talked about a few weeks ago. And Jesus says, no. When you give, you give in secrets. You don't make it so that people know. When you pray, you pray in secret. And when you fast, do it in a way that is secret. Wash your face. Don't look intentionally hungry to get people to ask why you look hungry. Because when you are doing those things for your own sake, you're making yourself God. That's ultimately what it is. You're going for your own glory. You want people to elevate you rather than to glorify the Lord. And so these false teachers are like those hypocrites. They pretend to be one thing, but inside there's something else. They put on the clothes of sheep and pretend to be a sheep, but inside they are actually wolves that are looking to tear the flock apart. And the use of the wolf metaphor to designate false teachers is found often throughout the scriptures. We see it in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We see it in even the uh, the apocryphal books. We see it in Matthew and John and Acts. And the idea of false prophets or teachers as part of the last days, when uh, the days before Jesus returns, it's developed. All throughout Matthew. It's developed in 2 Thessalonians. It's in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and 2 Peter and 1 John. This is all throughout the scriptures. And so we must be wary of this. It is not enough to simply say we need to be unified because the Bible doesn't say that. It does say that we should have unity, but we should have unity around Christ and who he is, not around trying to say we're all Christians. We should be willing to cut ties with those who have rejected Christ. And these wolves, they appear genuine, but they're hiding their true intentions. And Jesus tells his followers that they will be able to recognize these wolves based on their fruit. And these wolves often will come as the preachers. They will come. It even says, uh, continuing a little bit further down in a couple of verses, that they will do mighty works. In the name of Jesus, they'll heal people, cast out demons and do these sorts of things. And Jesus will tell them, depart from me because you're a worker of lawlessness. I've never known you. So we need to look at their fruit. When we see someone like Benny Hinn, when we see these teachers on the TV, we need to look at what their lifestyle is like. When we see Kenneth Copeland, when we see all of these guys who are saying one thing, Proclaiming to be men of God and then living a lifestyle that's utterly against that. When we see uh, less so now, but still healing revivals where people come in and they proclaim that they're going to be healing and having these revivals and we go and we, uh, we want to see this great work of God and maybe they even show you something of power. We need to test them in their fruits. We must Be willing to challenge those so-called men of God, including me. Don't just sit there and accept everything I say blindly. Read the scripture, study, get to know it for yourself, and let's talk if you have issues. If you think I'm in the wrong, come talk to me in the way that Jesus says later in Matthew. Go in private, and then go with someone else if he rejects it, and then bring it before the church if he continues to reject it. I'm included in that. I'm not some, basically some witch doctor that goes up on the mountain to hear the word of God. I am a member of this church like each of you. I've simply put in the time and the effort and you all are giving funding to help me have the time to put in the effort to study the scriptures and then to proclaim them to you. That's the main difference between us. That's the only real difference between us in the eyes of God. And while I'm in this position, God will hold me responsible as an under shepherd of his flock. So I guess that's a difference as well. But each of you, when Jesus is talking about these false teachers, he's not talking to the pastors. He's not simply talking to the rabbis, the teachers. He's talking to everyone who came to listen to him. So if you are a member of a church, it is part of your responsibility as a member to guard the doctrine of the church. And if you are not putting in the effort to study and get to know this, asking questions, if you have questions, ask me. If I don't know, I'll seek out the answers and then they come back to you. Get to dig in deep and study. And I'm so grateful that the women have started this study on the doctrine of Scripture scripture to understand what it means to have the Bible, that it is the inspired Word of God. Because as we study doctrine, our church becomes stronger. When we are united upon the right doctrines, we have a unity that the world cannot tear apart. But when we... Refuse to study. When we refuse to gather with the church, to be called out in our sin, to uh, to confess one another, to confess to one another our sin, so that we may be built up in righteousness. When we refuse these things, we are creating a culture, a church that is ripe for wolves. So may we be zealous for truth. It takes work, but that's a good thing. May we love what God has given to us. And may we love one another enough to study, to protect one another. And this idea of fruit in the New Testament, it's not simply deeds, but it's everything that they are. Like the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those should be evident. That is the good fruit that will be evident in the life of a believer. If those are not evident, it might be that they're growing slowly. So we need to, we need to have grace in this. But if the opposite of those things is evident, we have reason to fear for our eternal security. And so when you sit under anyone, a preacher, I mean, I'm, not, I'm no great rhetorical preacher. I'm not a funny guy. I'm not one of those, things, one of those preachers who are gonna just kind of set you at ease and get chuckles. Sometimes I have to tell you that I made a joke so that you'll laugh. Uh, but a preacher, all of these ones who are on TV, the ones who are on YouTube, the ones who are doing uh, these things, they can gather this great following and can wow. A congregation with all their skill, their ability to uh, do alliteration to give you this or that, and uh, anyways, I'm not very good at it. I try to come up with it on the spot, and it really doesn't work at that point. But we have seen so many of these so-called gifted men fall. We have seen the name of Christ blasphemed among the nations. Because we have elevated people to a position that they never should have been at because there was no fruit in their lives. We have put wolves in the position of the under shepherds. And so may we be watchful of who we're listening to. May we be understanding that they, even the ones that we trust and we like, even the ones that seem to hold very similar convictions to us. We should not blindly believe them. We're allowed to disagree with people. I love Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, 19th century preacher. And I was wowed when I was like, I don't think I agree with him here. And I was like, am I allowed to do that? Am I allowed to disagree with Spurgeon? Yes, you're allowed to disagree with the the so-called men of God. Study be found approved that you may not end up attacking other true believers as well. Don't get caught up in the charisma of people who can give you a great show on stage. Don't get caught up in the charisma of the worship music that just moves your emotions but doesn't really say that much. Uh, I strive to introduce you all to good songs that's going to teach you things from all throughout all throughout history. I've introduced songs from the 1200s. I've introduced songs that are only a couple years old. I've, I'll introduce brand new songs sometimes. But I want you to have an arsenal of truth because songs are the, that's what we'll remember, right? How many can remember what sermon was preached 20 years ago? But you remember some of the songs you sang 20 years ago. So let us cling to truth. Let us reject the false teachers. And may we examine the fruit. May we get up close and look to see what the fruit is of their lives. Let's not be afraid of doing that. And let's not do it in a spirit of judgment, of thinking that we are better than them. We already talked about this last week. But let's do it in a spirit of humility, wanting the flock to be pre- protected and knowing that we ourselves are worthy of judgment and that God will judge us the same way we judge others. So when we confront, may we do it with a love and a humility and a desire to see brothers and sisters one, and not for winning the, the argument, not for pony noobs on the internet. That's a modern concept anyways. Sorry, guys, that wasn't very funny when we see true prophets when we see the true teachers fruit will accompany that we'll see that they don't want their own name built up they're not wearing the most expensive things They're not looking to be glorified themselves, but rather they're looking to glorify God. And they'll say the hard things in a way that wants you to repent. And not in a way that wants to tear you down and just say, oh, you're a terrible person. Good fruit will come from those who are true. So then, the final example that Jesus gives are the wise and foolish builders. We all know this song, right? We learned it in Sunday school. foolish man built his house upon the sand. The floods came, or the rains came down, and the floods came up, right? And the house on the sand went <clears throat> all right. I, I, that was the way I learned it. I liked it as a kid. Jesus makes something abundantly clear in this warning. The wise man is the one who hears, the one who hears the words of Jesus and does he acts on the words of Jesus based on the wisdom of those words. He is the wise man. She is the wise woman who is building her house or his house upon the rock. There is this concept of recognizing that it's not simply hearing. There's an action based off of what we have heard. This is why I pray, like I out loud, I pray that we will be changed by what we hear, that our lives will be changed, that our neighbor's lives will end up being changed because our lives have been, been changed, that our, our family members' lives will be changed because those who are wise and who will listen to the words of the Lord, I like the wise builder who built his house upon the rock. And when everything comes against him and against that house, it stands firm because it is built on the rock, which is Christ and his teachings. But on the other side, he doesn't simply say those who don't hear my words. He says those who hear my words and then don't do them are like the foolish builder who built his house upon sand. And then when the storms of life come, you have nothing but destruction left for you. When the end comes for you, as it will come for each of us, you have nothing but destruction left. So Jesus is making it abundantly clear that it is not enough to speak or to hear without doing obedience is the necessary result of true hearing of the teachings of Christ and it was emphasized in the old testament it is emphasized in the other jewish, jewish writings and it was emphasized all throughout the new testament the faith without works is dead it's in james and the emphasis for the foolish builder is on the great destruction which is this picture of the great judgment to come if we if Jesus comes back in our lifetime it is said to us in Revelation that there is a final judgment, which for those of us who are found in Christ, who our righteousness is not resting in our own works, when we're found perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect, because we are covered by the blood of the Son who is perfect. At the end of the age, we are part of those who will remain when all sin, death, and darkness will be destroyed. It'll be like the Garden of Eden. When we hear of this paradise, we should long for it. And then when we read Revelation, we should long for Christ to return. How many of us want wars to end? How many of us want natural disasters to end? How many of us want our bodies to stop aging? For us to be redeemed? How many of us want death to end? I'd be shocked if there's anyone in this room who hasn't lost someone they loved. And we should mourn when that comes. These so-called, these supposed Christian platitudes where we say, oh, they're with Jesus now, it's okay. Like, just, you shouldn't cry, just be happy. That's not true. I mean, it is. (laughs) But it's not true that we simply should just smile. We shouldn't lie about the way of the world. That there's grief because of those who have passed. When people die, it should shock us into remembering the effects of sin on our world. And we should grieve for what we have lost, especially when they're good people. The only thing that I could think of when dwelling on my father-in-law's death was it is right to grieve his death because the world is not a better place for him not being here. So we should grieve the effects of sin and we should long for the day when Christ returns, when all of the saints will be resurrected into this new heavens and earth to where the God himself dwells among us as our God. We should be willing to weep and mourn the loss. And we should be willing to weep and mourn the loss of those who aren't Christians as well, knowing what has been promised for them. Destruction. So then, in this conclusion, where the name of the sermon comes from, one with authority, the conclusion of the entire sermon is verse 28 and 29. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he spoke as one with authority and not like their scribes. The... Just a real quick context. The scribes would basically look at previous teachings and then kind of teach what had already been taught. They were teaching the others. Jesus, in contrast, while he knew the Torah, which was the law of God, the first five books of the Old Testament, he knew that. He knew the laws that the Pharisees had made, but he didn't rely on really any of that for his teachings. He referenced the law of God, but he didn't rely on that. He had the authority to proclaim a true and fulfilled law. And Jesus spoke with authority because he had the authority to proclaim this law that has been fulfilled in him. And so all throughout Matthew, you continue to see this amazement of the crowds. Wow, this guy, he's got some authority behind him. And it's not a false authority. It's not an arrogance. It is the true authority that only the son of God has. So now, this morning, everyone who is here is on a spectrum, right? So on the first, you could be here primarily because on the one end of the spectrum, you're here primarily because your family wants you to be here. And to be honest, you don't really want anything to do with Christianity. So you're antagonistic toward Christianity to some extent, but you love your family, and so that's why you're here. Or uh, the next one is that we have the neutral but not yet, is what I call them where you are apathetic, you're kind of neutral, you're not really antagonistic towards it, you're not really leaning towards Christianity and interested in it either, uh, and you're not yet ready to make any real effort into studying. Um, the third one next to that are, in a sense, the seekers, those who are seeking for the answers and truth but aren't ready yet, haven't, haven't taken the plunge, in a sense. They haven't committed their lives to Christ Right next to that, we have the pseudo Christians, those who are Christian in name only. You might have an affinity toward Christianity. You might like coming to church on Sundays. You might like doing all these things, and yet there's nothing truly. uh, There's no true evidence of good fruit in your life. You refuse to join the church. You refuse to uh, join with the church in its efforts. You refuse to uh, join in a sense that you are confessing your sin to other people, so that you may be built up and encouraged. You are saying that you're a Christian, but nothing in your life reflects that, uh, ultimately, from what Jesus has said through this whole Sermon on the Mount. And then next, we have the young Christians who are growing and open and wanting to learn as much as they can and absorbing information and just wanting more and more because they are starting to be nourished and growing. Like a teenager who's a bottomless pit of food, right? Like this is who these young Christians are. They just can't be satisfied enough in a, in a positive way. They just want more. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have the mature Christians. The ones who have grown. The ones who have their roots planted in the wells of life. The ones who are continuing to grow And maybe in a different sense than the young ones who are just shooting right up. But they're the ones with the knowledge, the maturity to be able to train those young uh, Christians to be able to continue to lead them on. And so uh, leave that up, Jordan. I want people to be able to see this as well. The things that Jesus is teaching here. Number one, your path that you choose determines your destiny the middle two categories, the seeker and the pseudo-Christian, if you're in those categories, you uh, uh, you have this mistaken idea that it's all right to be neutral. That it's all right to maybe take the name of Christ for yourself and yet not live in that sense or just be interested in it, but not enough to actually say, this is true and responding in faith to that truth. You want to get to heaven and yet you still want to hold on to the things of the world that you're grasping. And so if you're in those categories, I want to tell you, there are only two paths. There are only two people. There's no neutral middle ground to where you can uh, take this middle ground and still somehow get to heaven without having to sacrifice and go down the narrow road. There are only two kinds of people. And each of us will face judgment before God. Now the question is, will we go before the one true, holy, righteous judge and make a case based on our actions, simply our actions, or simply us taking on the name of Christ, or simply us coming to church, or simply us reading the Bible every day? Are you ready to make that case, knowing then the ways that you have looked at someone with lust, the ways that you have held anger Toward someone in your heart? The ways that you have taken oaths and way, ways that Jesus says that's, that's presumptuous to think that you have any authority to take an oath on something? Can you really stand before the true, holy, and just God? If you do not take the narrow path through the narrow gate, there's nothing for you to look forward to except destruction this is the job of a a preacher, of a pastor, is to warn people of this. I, I don't want you to face destruction. I want you to see life. This is important. Don't play games with your eternal security. You're not promised tomorrow either. So if you're kind of on the fence about it, make a choice and give yourself wholeheartedly to it. If you make the wrong one, realize it, turn back. C.S. Lewis said that it is not regression to go backwards when you're going the wrong direction. It's progression to go backwards if you've gone the wrong direction. So turn back. There is no real life now. Joel Osteen saying your best life now, there's no best life now. If your best life is now, the worst life is to come. The narrow path is one of sacrifice and suffering, but the end result is worth it. It's more than worth it. Those who choose the easy way reject the life of discipleship that Jesus demands of us. So then the next thing that Jesus is teaching is that we must maintain the purity of the church. False prophets and teachers are a great danger to the church and to God's people. And because it is because they present themselves as genuine sheep. And when we just blindly listen to anyone, when we just accept everything that they're saying is right because it sounds good to us, is that not the definition of sin that we have laid out? Sin is choosing for ourselves what is good and what's bad. We must lean into the scriptures, into the word of God, And be willing to engage and to study and to know what is good and true, so that we may shut down the false teachers. If a wolf was to step into this room, would we be prepared to throw them out if they start trying to teach us falsely? And in this, we must be willing to separate the order. Uh, There's a thing called theological triage: first order, second order, third order. If uh, you're a nurse, you know a little bit more about triage probably than I do, but especially in the ER, those who are the, like a gunshot wound, it's getting in before someone with a broken arm. There are things that are more important than other things. And so the first order issues, the most important issues are things like the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the uh, penal substitutionary atonement, uh, which we can talk about later if you really have questions about that. The return of, um, and the, that, the fact that Christ will return maybe not the manner in which he will return. These are issues that are important. These are vital. If you do not believe these things, you are not a Christian. And then there's the second order issues to where we would separate and not be able to worship together. This is one of the reasons why I pray for churches that don't have necessarily the same exact faith as us, but yet are still faithful as much as they think they can be to the scriptures. I pray for the Presbyterian church, for the Methodist church, Uh, for those who are remaining faithful. I want them to see the life and goodness of God as well. And for those who are unfaithful, I pray for their repentance. Um, and so these are secondary issues. Methodists and Baptists have enough difference that we, it would be disunifying for us to try to unify and come together. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And then a third order issues are things that we can disagree on and still worship together. We can disagree about the millennium at the end of the age, whether we're pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial. You may not know what any of that means. If you do, uh, you probably uh, have done a little bit of study into the end times. But we can even debate about Calvinism and Arminianism. You may not know what that means. But anyways, there are these third order issues, style of worship, that we could still worship together and not cause division. So we need to be prepared in understanding what are the most important things and what are the less important things. Because sometimes we just need to swallow our opinion. Uh, Jesus is then also teaching the insufficiency of church activity without obedience. And he uses charismatic activity that we didn't have much time to get into, but the prophesying, the healing, those sorts of things. These people have duplicated this powerful ministry of Christ. He's not saying that they're false. He's saying that they have done these works and they say they've done it in their name. But their lives show that they've never put into practice what Jesus demands of his true followers, namely the lifestyle that has been demanded in this sermon. So when they stand before the eschatological judge, the final judge at the great white throne in Revelation, they will discover that their stance before God has been nothing but a farce. Jesus is not opposed to such acts of power because he did them. He did those things. But such deeds must flow out of a life that is characterized by a superior righteousness. And without that, those deeds are worthless. And this can apply to the pseudo-Christians. If you're in that category, you attend faithfully and you have involvement in the church, you have these supposed fruits, but you've never actually given yourselves to Jesus. And ultimately, your life and fruit show show this. Outside of Sunday mornings when you come in and you put on your mask, oh, I'm blessed, brother. I'm blessed. Does your life have fruit? And the pseudo-Christians, you only have two possibilities. There's the potential of you being saved. Uh, In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that some of us will be saved as if someone jumping through flames. There's nothing that we're bringing with us. We barely survived. We barely escaped and we are saved. And basically what that's saying is when we get to heaven, there's virtually no reward for us except Christ. Because we've done nothing to honor his name in our lives except at the very end decide to actually put our faith in him. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to have, I, I don't want to get to heaven and say, Father, I offer this to you, what I have. Like when it says they, the, the given the crowns and they cast them before the feet of God. I want that crown to be able to throw it. The, the, I want something valuable to be able to offer before the Lord. And if I have no good works in my life, I have nothing to offer the father. I mean, and that's not about this life. It is about our, our, our worship Our acts of sacrifice that are given laid at the feet of the Father. But the second option, and all too many of the pseudo-Christians are gonna face this, is what Jesus said. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of evil. The final thing, and what I want you to leave with this morning, is Jesus' ultimate and incredible authority. This sermon presents the laws of the kingdom. And it demands the superior righteousness for the citizens of this new covenant community. Um, in the future weeks, we're gonna get more into covenants and stuff getting into the Old Testament, but we'll leave that for right now. And this conclusion cements that with the realization of Jesus's incredible authority by the crowds that we're following, um, we see then that the sermon is powerful in both content and form and that the foundation behind it is neither tradition Or the Torah itself, the law, the authority comes from within Christ, from who he is as the son of God. So in Jesus, God has spoken in a new way. The crowds who listen to this sermon could be considered the seekers. For they are interested in Jesus and his authority, and yet they fail to respond as he demands. They form the audience audience that listens to Jesus and that correspond to many of those who today read Matthew's gospel. Many of us potentially who are sitting in this uh, building this morning. So which gate have we entered? Which fruit is evident in our lives? And which builder are we? The original hearers of the sermon and each of us through the reading of the sermon, through the teaching of the sermon, are being called to repentance and to participation in the gospel message. Will we respond in faith and obedience or will we respond with indifference and rebellion? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are faithful to teach us, that you are faithful to show us what is true. God, may we not leave unchanged by the proclamation of your word. Lord, as we go into our lives throughout the week, as we don't see each other uh, through the week, God, may we be reminded of this truth. Father, may this sermon be sweet to us. May we turn back to it time and again to remind ourselves of what we need in Christ, of how desperately we need a Savior. That we are not able to fulfill the law on our own, but Christ is the one who is worthy and able to do this. And it's through our, through trusting he is who he says he is and letting our lives be changed accordingly that we can be saved. That we can be perfect. And as our song of the month says that we will be glorified till we're glorified Father, that is how you glorify us. It is through the blood of Christ that we are made new, that we uh, at the end of the age or at the end of our lives are raised up. Father, may we glorify you above all else. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.